Welcome to the bus stop. Uh, I'm Kurt Mackison, Executive Director of the National School Transportation Association. And today our guest is Seth Hoffman. He's managing partner and founder of Benjamin Company uh, out of Philadelphia. So welcome to the show, Seth. Thanks, Kurt. Great to be here. Terrific. Um, now I know that um, you know that you're you are um, you know founder of uh, Benjamin and Company. So why don't you take a couple minutes? Tell us uh, a little bit about uh, both you and uh, the company. Sounds great. Thanks, Kurt. Uh, so in my career, I began working in the financial services industry with Merrill Lynch back in the late '90s, early 2000s. Uh, transitioned my career to be an independent financial advisor with AXA Advisors uh, before founding Benjamin and Company a few years ago. Uh, Benjamin and Company uh, is a full-service financial uh, firm that advises retirement plan fiduciaries, associations, investment committees with respect to their group retirement plans, endowments, and corporate accounts. Um, in my experience, I'm an, a, an accredited investment fiduciary a certified plan financial advisor, as well as a certified health savings advisor. Uh, and again, work with, with companies all across the country, associations and endowments with respect to their uh, investment accounts. Well, that's great. Uh, uh, and I know that you uh, started a new role um, or somewhat new role with uh, NSTA itself. Uh, so well, why don't you tell us what you're doing you know, with the organization? Perfect. Um, so, you know, Benjamin and Company is is part of a, a larger network known as Commonwealth Financial Network. And in fact, we're the nation's largest privately held independent broker dealer and registered investment advisor. Uh, so in working with, with the NSTA, um, we began our, our relationship with the NSTA by developing uh, a member investment risk tolerance questionnaire and experience survey. Uh, to really get to the heart of uh, the the membership uh, and the folks that are involved with uh, the investment account to ensure that the investments that are being offered within the investment account are the best they can possibly be from not only a performance standpoint, but on a risk-adjusted basis. Uh, so we've assisted the, the NSTA with some association research, best practices for investment reserve accounts. Uh, we've worked with the NSTA to develop an investment policy statement uh, based on the responses to our, our questionnaires and experience surveys. Um, and then we've also uh, helped to dictate the types of investments allowable and the monitoring criteria by which the investments are selected within the, the account itself. Uh, we're going to be working with the NSTA and the Finance Committee ongoing to help with the reallocation of the account. Uh, as well as to provide ongoing monitoring and maintenance of the investments. Uh, meetings will be held on at least a semi-annual basis uh, to talk to the folks that sit on the Finance Committee uh, through the NSTA to ensure that these investments that we're using are the best that they can possibly be. That's great, and I'm, I'm sure that um, you know part and parcel of, of that process is the notion that the NSTA is a nonprofit organization. Um, and, and you want to have investments that are suitable for that kind of organization. Exactly. So one of the things we actually look at within our investments that we're using is to ensure that they're socially responsible investments, uh, that the, 
the investments that we're using and the reallocations that we're performing are uh, the best they can possibly be within a nonprofit association. So when it comes to ESG investing, uh, we ensure that the investments we're using uh, are appropriate uh, for this type of account. Uh, in fact, the majority of the investments that we're using within the portfolio are through uh, very safe and secure investments through Vanguard, which is where the, the account is held today. Great. And uh, yeah, we certainly appreciate the, your expertise in, in working uh, you know, through that process uh, with us. So, so we thank you for that. Um, you know, way back when, you know, probably 30 years ago or so, you know, there, there always seemed to be some kind of market fluctuation typically occur in, you know, October um, or in the last quarter. But things are so different today and we see such major market fluctuations recently. Um, and I guess some of these fears have been driven over Chinese tariffs. Um, why don't you talk to us about market fluctuations in general, and then maybe what are some of the causes uh, of those? Of course. Yeah, so, you know, volatility has certainly become a lot more prevalent in the market, and whether it be in the, the final quarter of the year, you know, due to tax loss harvesting or, or other, you know, investment-related strategies, uh, we tend to see it a lot more today based on headlines, not necessarily fundamentals of investing. Um, you know, the typical adage is that if, if companies are performing well and their earnings are strong, that their stock price would eventually be on the rise. Um, but in today's day and age, with access to information being so at our fingertips and on our phones, uh, a lot of what's happening in the headlines in the news today is affecting the stock market in a really big way. Um, Kurt, you mentioned Chinese tariffs, and I think it's a great point to make, um, whereas the, the impact of Chinese tariffs on our overall global markets isn't necessarily that big of a, a in terms of movement of the, the U.S. equity stock markets. But um, unfortunately, with the news about tariffs being imposed or being repealed or being added to different products, um, and moving around quite a bit, uh, we, we tend to see the market shifting from a volatility perspective, both up and down. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the market rise pretty rapidly here based on news that, that there may be some sort of deal pending with regard to Chinese tariffs. But if the news were to turn the opposite direction uh, and more tariffs were to be imposed, possibly at some point in the future, we may see the market start to fall a bit. Uh, there's certainly been a lot more volatility just because of that access to information. Uh, when we look at the fundamentals of the market, when we look at things like jobs growth, earnings for those, those jobs, uh, when we look at unemployment rates, uh, when we look at the manufacturing index, uh, we actually see, as well as corporate earnings, we see the market in a really good place today. Um, one of the biggest items that we did See over the last couple of weeks with regard to how the market may be performing in the future is what's known as an inverted yield curve. Um, and, and many of, of our listeners here may have been, uh, may have seen this in the news and may have been, um, you know, talking about this around the water cooler or maybe seen this on Bloomberg. But 
Um, when long-term interest rates become lower in terms of their yield than short-term interest rates, for example, if you were to buy a, a 10-year bond, you would expect that bond to have a higher interest rate than a short-term bond, something like a two-year bond. Um, and as of a couple of weeks ago, the yield curve actually went the opposite direction, uh, which is what we call an inverted yield curve. So you could have actually got a better rate, better yield off of a short-term two-year bond than you could have based off of a 10-year bond or a long-term bond. Um, I'm, I'm happy to, to report that as of last week, the yield curve actually normalized. Uh, so now you can get a higher yield, very slightly higher yield on a long-term bond than you can off a short-term bond. So that's good news for the markets. Um, but it's also important to note that every single recession that we've had uh, since the beginning of history, in going back to the Great Depression, has been preceded by an inverted yield curve. Now, that doesn't mean that an inverted yield curve will cause a recession. Uh, it's sort of not a cause and effect situation, but it's important to note that every recession we've ever had in history has been preceded by one of these inverted yield curves. So um, that was the only bit of, of fundamental news that's come out lately that would cause a pause in the market, and it certainly caused some volatility. But Kurt, back to your question on, on Chinese tariffs, there's a lot going on that's newsworthy that's been affecting the market in a really big way and, and causing a lot of the volatility that we've seen. And, and we definitely think the volatility is going to continue. And we're certainly hopeful that this fourth quarter, as we approach October here, uh, isn't going to be like last year's fourth quarter where the markets were down over 15%. Um, you know, we're hoping that we can ride out the rest of the year here, smooth sailing and, and things will, will, be in, in a positive territory by, by year end, uh, but certainly with next year being an election year, uh, it's certainly um, you know a wait and see approach on what could happen with the markets through the end of the year and early in the next year. Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, uh, description and explanation, um, you know, of the cause and effect of, of certain things, um, you know, on the markets. Um, the, Outside of Chinese tariffs, do you see any other factors that bear watching? I know we had some news, you know, vis-a-vis um, -vis Saudi Arabia and maybe um, oil production. Do um, you think that'll have an effect moving forward? Yeah, so, you know, and that's really new news, right? Yep, <laughs> um, in that's, terms of that's the news cycle happening. these days. Yeah, over the weekend. And it just goes to show that literally news is blasting out over the weekend. And, and here we are. You know, looking at the markets, not performing so well even as of this morning. Um, you know, here on on the 16th of September. So, you know, it's it's it certainly is going to have an impact. And we've seen oil prices skyrocket really over the last couple of days. In fact, even today, crude oil is up 11 and a half percent. Might mean that we all want to fill up our gas tanks as quickly as possible because I think that's actually the biggest impact. Is uh, unfortunately. Um, the, the oil producers and, and when it hits us at the pumps, when we see oil prices and we see this, this supply shrinking rapidly, whether it be um, news from OPEC or, or whether it be an event of some kind uh, like we've seen here out of Saudi Arabia, it generally impacts the pumps the most, um, even though it, it really actually shouldn't. Uh, it always does. Uh, the way that gas prices are actually 
brought to us has, has very little to do with what's happening in, in supply and short-term supply, but uh, it does tend to affect us. You'll notice that whenever there's an event like this, gas prices skyrocket and it takes them forever to come back down uh, yeah, back to where they were. And, and that's unfortunately due to, to the news cycle. But um, I, I don't see it having necessarily a long-term impact on the market. Although, if you think about how consumer spending works and how that impacts profitability of companies, if people have to spend more money at the pumps, and and certainly as it as it affects busing in general, right? If we're spending more money on on fuel, on gasoline, then eventually companies will have less money to provide R and D and services and increases in pay to their employees. Employees will have to spend more money on gasoline. Uh, won't be able to maybe go on as many vacations. Won't be able to buy as many products and services. And ultimately, that's what affects the earnings of companies, which should affect the overall market. Um, but I do think what's happening right now with, with regard to oil, at least hopefully, is, is something that's short term and will be in the rearview mirror soon. But, you know, it's certainly so early uh, to tell. It's, it's more of a, a wait and see over the next couple of days. Okay. Um, so you touched upon um, one thing just slightly, and that's the presidential race. And like anything else, we were just talking about the news cycle. Um, presidential race begins uh, once upon a time. It was a one-year phenomenon. Um, people were nominated and elected in the same year. Now, it's almost like a two-year cycle um, starting uh, from start to finish. Um, so the, I, I would guess the effects of a presidential race have elongated um, its effect on the markets, too. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about how presidential races do affect the economy? Absolutely. Um, you know, and again, going back to statistics, uh, not that statistics ne necessarily drive what happens in the market, but when we go back in history, um, you know, election years tend to be very strong years uh, for the, the U.S. stock market. In fact, there's only been very, I believe, three down years uh, within a, a presidential election year uh, for the market. So every other election that we've had, markets have been positive. Um, that doesn't mean next year will be positive as we go into this election. But, you know, if statistics hold true, you know, theoretically, the market should be uh, doing well as we go into an election. If you think about this election cycle, as you mentioned, Kurt, being so much longer than it ever used to be, um, spending on advertising, uh, construction. We're all seeing it now with roads being paved and more construction than ever. Um, you know, these these elections that we see, um, you know, are, are very cyclical in nature. Obviously, it happens every four years in terms of the presidency. And, you know, what we see in the next couple of months with regard to uh, the Democratic race uh, will, I think, be interesting and telling for next year. Um, I, I don't think we'll know enough about what's going to be happening within the presidential election and, and within the race until we know who the candidates actually are. Although a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on, on what'll be happening. Um, you know, our, our thought is if, ever, if it holds somewhat true in that market years are positive during an election year, then, then next year, as we push into the end of 2019 here and into 2020, barring any sort of, you know, unforeseen event, of course, uh, we actually think the markets 
you know, we'll be trading higher and things should be should be good through the the end of this year and into next year. But I think the biggest item that we see really on the docket right now with regard to the, the political side of things uh, and as it affects companies, specifically uh, companies in, in transportation, uh, busing and, and, and also any employer that has a significant amount of part time employees. Um, one of the, the biggest bills right now uh, that's set up in the Senate, which is actually already passed through the House, um, is, is a bill called the SECURE Act. Uh, the bill SECURE stands for Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement uh, Act. Uh, SECURE Act was, was proposed by uh, the House, and Ways, uh, House Ways and Means Committee members and was actually passed with unanimous approval and now sits at the Senate now that the Senate is back in session uh, there's a lot of favor behind this SECURE Act, um, and there's a lot of different provisions of the Act uh, that are very positive. Um, you know, and some would say all are positive, but depending on which side uh, of the equation you really sit on from an employer perspective, uh, it could be somewhat expensive for employers that, that employ a lot of part-time employees or possibly even contractors. Um, as we see the SECURE Act today, and again, it, it has some provisions that are pretty positive, things like raising the required minimum distribution age from 70 and a half to 72, which means you don't have to take your money out of your, your 401k or your IRA at 70 and a half. You can now wait until 72. So if you don't need the money, you're, you don't have to take it out and get taxed on it. Uh, things like allowing multi-employer retirement plans companies to band together to get better pricing and investments on their 401k plans, uh, simplifying some safe harbor regulations for employers. But uh, I think the biggest item here is with regard to part-time employees. And the way the bill stands today, the bill says that they're going to allow long-tenured part-time employees who would be otherwise excluded from contributing to the retirement plan, like your 401k plan, to participate in the company-sponsored 401k as long as they've had 500 hours of, of employment throughout the year and they've been an, an employee of the organization for three consecutive years. So the definition of long-term in the eyes of the House and the Senate is three years, um, which I think is important. Uh, and they're reducing that hourly requirement from 1,000 hours a year to 500 hours a year. So breaking it down in layman's terms, if you have an employee today that's been with your company for over three years um, and they're considered a part-timer, um, then they can now get into the 401k plan if they've worked more than an average of, of 10 hours a week. Uh, the old requirement is a thousand hours a year, which comes down to just a little over 20 hours per week. Or so, if you work 20 hours a week, you would hit that. Uh, excuse me, a little over. So, if you work 20 hours a week, you would hit the thousand-hour requirement, which means as an employee, you would be eligible for the company-sponsored 401k plan. The new bill cuts that in half, which means if you have an employee that works part-time, that's been with your company for three years or more. They're now considered a long-tenured employee. If they work 10 hours a week, they'll be eligible for your company's 401k plan. And where that impacts a lot of folks from a, you know, whether it's having a lot of part-time employees or companies that, that specifically exclude those, those employees that work less than 1,000 hours, 
This could have grand effects on testing for your 401k plans, your non-discrimination testing that has to be done every year. Could have a big effect on uh, your the economics of the plan in general if you now have to con- have employees contributing that were otherwise excluded that will now be contributing to the plan and have smaller balances. It could raise the cost of administering your 401k. Uh, but I think the biggest impact could be on matching contributions, specifically safe harbor contributions. If you have a matching contribution or make a discretionary profit sharing contribution to your plan, you will now have to include these part-time employees that are eligible in those contribution calculations, which could be a significant amount of money depending on the scenario of the company. Well, Seth, uh, we we probably could go on for a couple hours um, talking about this. Uh, uh, so you, you've been a great guest, and obviously we'd like to have you back in the future um, to kind of call through um, you know what's going on and and as we discuss the presidential race and as that uh, continues to crystallize, it'll be interesting to uh, to see. Um, if folks want to get in touch with you, Seth, where can they find you? So they can reach me at my my office number two one five three one five zero zero nine seven extension one eleven, uh, or they can email me uh, s hoffman at bencoadvisors.com. Well, Seth Hoffman, managing partner and founder of Benjamin and Company out of Philadelphia. Thanks for joining us at the bus stop. Uh, we appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Kurt. Appreciate it. Thank you.